Welcome to Stories We Don't Tell, a podcast about storytelling. Stories We Don't Tell is a monthly event in Toronto that features candid stories of strength and resilience. I threw out my prayers, they went flying like balloons. And God caught on gothic ceilings, the most ornate in the world. What a sight, what a privilege to feel those heights. But my prayer stayed up there spinning. The air whipped our hair, we went shooting down the valley. Knuckles gripped upon the handles, shivers rushing down my spine. What's a blind always comes at the most frightening time to make sure you won't forget. And now, Stefan Hostetter. Call me when you get this. I look away, I look back at my computer just to read it again. Call me when you get this. Now Justin and I haven't actually been speaking much in the last four or five years, which makes this message even more ominous than its text. I steal a glance over to Olivia and then look back because the timestamp on the message says 8, 12 p.m. and it's just past two and we just pulled ourselves into our childhood twin bed. Hey Justin, I'm not gonna call you back in case you're already asleep, but I'll, but I'll be up for a little while, so here's my number if you wanna give me a call. And as soon as I send that message, my phone lights up. Bzzz, 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 hello? Hey Steph. Now, Justin and I actually never played organized baseball together. He was two years older than me, so always just outside my age bracket. So instead, all of our games were played on his backyard, or my backyard, or perhaps, if you were lucky, someone's park. But we shared the same bug. When I stepped on the t-ball diamond at age five, I was infected, which meant that every single one of my summers was dominated by long drives to baseball games or weekend practices or two steps forward, slap your glove on the ground. And at age 10, they let us start to pitch. And the second I began to dig my foot right beside that rubber, I knew I had found my home. For the next eight years, the mound was my drug of choice. And for all that time, I had one battery mate, one catcher. He was Honduran, uh, the son of immigrants, and while his birth certificate uh, said Lionel, he hated that name, (laughs) for good reason. And so instead we called him Alex, uh, while I felt a small twinge of pride knowing that it was only a half-truth. And we would follow each other from place to place, from league to league as they folded or couldn't find enough players for our age group. And while baseball was sort of an an escape for me to some extent, especially from school, I never really felt like I fit in. And the same could definitely not have been said for Alex. He had an easy laugh and an infectious smile and a passion for competition in the sport of baseball that made him a leader on every single team we played on. 
despite the fact that for most of those years, he didn't even come up to our shoulder blades. But from the tone of his voice, I knew Justin didn't have good news. Hey dude, what's up? I'm sorry to call so late. I just didn't want you to find out tomorrow over Facebook. Find out what? I could feel the color wash out of me as his voice cracked through the news. There's been an accident. Alex is gone. And I don't really remember the rest of the conversation, but I presumed I thanked him. I know I hung up. And what was, little, what was left of the wine uh, followed me onto the balcony. But the change of scenery did absolutely nothing to solve the numb that was now coursing through my bloodstream. And for as much as we talked, I didn't break down until we started talking about his parents. Now, when I was 15, I pitched the greatest game of my baseball career. It was on a warm June night, and it was on the worst diamond in all of Toronto, I swear to you. It was, it was an all-dirt infield, but not even like the good red dirt or the red clay. It was this just grayish mush that half the time you had to like rake until it actually looked like actual dirt. And the mound may have been half an inch at most. But I had fought my way through the first three innings and I got the fourth out in order. And so I swung myself into the chain link dugout feeling pretty confident about myself. Only hear a conversation between my coach and two of my teammates. You've got to pull him. He's going to blow it. I, I, I can't. He hasn't even let a hit yet. Because you see, this is sort of how it always was for me. I never felt like my team or I expected myself to succeed, which meant I put immense amounts of pressure on myself every time I went out there. Because the thought that one bad inning might mean that they, that they would take away my right, one bad outing might be the minute that I've thrown my last pitch, that they would take my drug away, was devastating. And so, I just, I put myself as far away from possible from the people having this conversation, so on the other side of the dugout, and stare out to watch my team keep playing. Now, of course, as luck would have it, they went three up, three down, and I found myself jogging out back onto the mound in the next say four minutes, trying to brush off all the negative feelings and negative comments as Alex began to call for my warm-up pitches. Thump, thump, thump. What was, what was that? Is that the door? We jump up and pause, waiting to hear it happens again. Thump, thump, thump. Who could that be? Olivia, started by the interruption, looks up at me. Because we're at my dad's house in Scarborough, house-sitting. Nobody knows we're here, and nobody uses the front door. Thump, thump, thump. I panic. I send Olivia to the door as I go the opposite direction, trying to get my shirt on. 
and she finds me less than a minute later still struggling with this confounding neck hole in the bathroom. It's, it's his father. Understanding breaches the dam and suddenly the shirt's on. And I give myself a half second to compose myself before heading to the door. When I'm there, I'm greeted by a man no taller than five even with a smile of recognition but unspeakable sadness behind his eyes. I, I wasn't sure if you'd heard. I have. I cut him off to spare him from having to say the words. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. Alex's parents hadn't been at my house for years but they still remembered the place that they let their golden child first stay without their own supervision. We were in the area, just wanted to make sure that your dad knew about the funeral. He spoke in this practiced but still broken English, and when he said we, he gestured towards his car idling on the street to acknowledge his wife. I tried to wave, but I'm almost certain she didn't see me. Because you see, my dad and Alex's parents had this connection because they were the only people to be at every single one of our baseball games. And Alex's parents, especially his mom, had this habit of cheering so loudly every time we scored a run. She brought noisemakers and it would just go crazy, which was rare because we played for some terrible teams. <laughs> but I, I thanked him. I promised I would let my dad know and that we would be there. And then as I closed the door, I wished him a great day. <laughs> a great fucking day. On the morning of the funeral, my dad picked, a, picked Olivia and I up from a subway station in our 1990 Plymouth Voyager. It had been our, ha been our car for at least 15 years at this point, which meant that it still had a baseball sitting in one of our cup holders. And I played with it absentmindedly as we drove. And it weighed in my pocket as I ascended the steps towards the big wooden doors of the church. I played, I moved the ball through my sweaty hands as I stared down off the mound. I'd gotten through the rest of the game without letting up a hit, which meant that I was one out away from not only the win, but a no-hitter. But the momentum of two quick strikes was immediately lost by my third pitch that missed badly. And as I caught the ball back, I snapped my, gla my glove in frustration and turned my back and walked back to the mound. And the voices of doubt began to run my head again. You can't do this. You're never really that good. You're going to fuck this up. But as I spun back, to face home plate, I saw that Alex had already called time, stopped play, and was coming towards, and was already jogging towards me. Because he was always one for pep talks. In fact, 
Even as I lose some of his mannerisms to the sands of time, I can still picture him standing in front of me in full catcher gear with his glove half covering his mouth. You got this. Don't let them get in your head. This is your man. Throw your forkball and bury it. Let's have some fun out there, okay? And as he finished with a short but unmistakable smile, I nod and he jogged back behind home plate. And I flipped the ball between my hands. As I sat in our pew near the back of the funeral. Because we were small players in this world of grief. I refuse to say that this was a part of God's plan. The pastor began. This was a tragedy and nothing more. I would find myself sitting amongst standing room only through the aisles. The second floor was opened and filled. Fire regulations almost certainly broken. I ran my hands across the seams of the baseball as I met the man Alex became while listening to his loved ones try to say goodbye. Because this was their place, their time. But a week later, I would attend another funeral for Alex. This time there was only just me. I went for a walk in the twilight with my goodbye written on a small folded piece of paper. And when I left the house, I didn't know what I was doing. And when I hopped the fence at Christie Pitts and walked towards the mound, I still didn't. But as I ascended a slight incline, I reached down and I began to pick at the clay right beside the rubber until I made an inch deep hole. I put my message of goodbye in it, whispered some thanks, and filled it in, trusting that this dirt mailbox would let him know. And as I stood up, I turned back towards home plate and paused for just a second because I could see him still sitting there, crouched in full catcher gear, calling for a forkball low. And when it left my hand, I knew it was a good one. It went sailing towards the batter, only to dive deep below his bat for strike three. And as Alex popped up with a ball in his glove and pointed at me, there you go, kid, there you go. And I turned to the dimming light and the empty field. There you go, kid. There you go. So we just heard a story that Stefan told at our March special event, Storyfire, as part of the Toronto Storytelling Festival. So 
So, Stephanie, this was a story that you told that you were working on for quite a while, though. So maybe mm -hmm. it would be interesting just to start to hear about how this thing, where did it start, and, and how did it, it really kind of uh, evolved into something almost uh, quite different from it was at the beginning. Yeah, so I, I actually brought the story. Uh, well, it, it's funny to say brought the story, considering what I, what I brought was nothing like this, uh, to uh, an LGP meeting, to one of our, to a writing group meeting uh, that from like a year and a half, I think, really, before this, the, the, that I ended up telling the story at an event. Um, and it was, it was very different, uh, when I, when, when I brought it in and it was, I just didn't really know what to do with it. I mm -hmm. think as a sort of, sort of, even when I brought it in, uh, to you, to, to, to the writing group then, and sort of when I started looking at it later, uh, to tell at this, at this event, um, I just never really, I didn't know how to get, it, get it. Uh, and I was and like the fa you know, which is obvious. Can the 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 story subject matter is you know something that fits with the th you know the way our stories uh, usually go, uh, but it was also I think what the sixth story that I told, uh, and I had all these other ones I went through first. It never really felt like my story to tell. Um, a little bit of background on the story was that you know at the time of 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 um, of his death we hadn't really been close friends for maybe now five years i think we sort of you know once i stopped playing baseball at 18 we talked a little bit back and forth uh but at this point i was i think i was 23 uh and we weren't living in the same lives we weren't living the same world uh and there were you know and there were other guys who played on the same team who were his best friends and so when i went and i got in that funeral and there was you know there were people there who you know, this was their. This was the space for them. This was their thing. This was, it was. It, this happened to them. It didn't happen to me, uh, and and I really felt that. Um, and so I just, it was weird to try to find a way to sort of be like, no, this is a real thing I felt, and this is a real thing that I went through, uh, while, I guess, also acknowledging the fact that you know. Th this story isn't exactly mine to tell mm -hmm. uh, or that, or that the most compelling version of the story even, or, or like, or something that, that this isn't even a, like, this is people's lives. Mm -hmm. Like this is, this was the most devastating thing that has probably happened, certainly happened to almost everyone in the story. Mm -hmm. uh, and so to, for, I have to have sort of to sort of helicopter in and then, and then recount my own experiences just always felt a little fake. Yeah, I, I have a, a two-parter question for okay. you. Because um, something that I'm really always interested in is a story like this one that you're, that you're talking about and how long you were working on it, is that you can't... I'm interested in those stories that you can't let go of, even though like you haven't figured it out yet, or you've told it and you're like, nah, something's not right yet, but you still... You might put it aside for, for a few months and then you always sort of return to it. So my first question is... Why did you feel you wanted to keep returning to it? My second question is, you talked about what something was missing or something like how and where you are in the story. I think maybe those things might be connected is what was the thing that clicked for you where you were able to kind of bring yourself into the story in a way and, and feel more comfortable talking about it, even though, like you said, it's somebody else's story. It's a chance to sort of understand it for yourself. Uh, like, you know, if you can get a, if you can get a piece out... Um, because so often in, in in stories that you that you can't figure out how to write or you can't figure out how to write, you're you're jumping over the parts that you just don't understand really mm -hmm. you're jumping over the parts that you don't know how to get into you're jumping over the parts that you can't 
handle. Uh, and, you know, when you think of and it, often I think that's the part of the thing about the stories we don't tell is that the stories you don't tell are also the stories you don't think about. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the, they're the parts of your life that you skip over. Uh, they, they're like, oh, that was, a, that was a perfectly fine summer that year. Yeah, that one weird thing happened, but the rest of the summer was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how you think about that summer. Um, and I think the power of, of storytelling, the power of sort of working these things out is it's, it's a way to own your life. It's a way to own your, you know, to own it and to really show it. And so I think part of it was, I kept going back to it because it was, I wanted to understand it for myself. I wanted to sort of, I wanted to understand sort of where I was in it. I wanted to understand um, how I could feel about it and how I did feel about it. And sort of forcing myself to sit down with this piece over and over again was sort of my way of doing that, mm. really. Um, and then sort of why I, why I told the story, why I, part of it was just sort of like, Alex was such an amazing person. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he was just the, the greatest. Uh, and I just didn't sort of, I wanted to sort of convey that. I wanted to, I wanted to sort of give that, that, that voice, um, and find a way to sort of do that again without, without sort of, without, with acknowledging that there's, you know, this is, this is me. I'm, 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 I'm a periphery to this entire, to, to this, to this real story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a, if, 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 if you're writing the story of, of Alex's life, um, I'm an extra, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, you probably see me a couple times. Uh, but if I have one speaking line, it'll be, it'll be like, who knows when it would happen. Uh, and it wouldn't be a big, you know, and I'm not, a, I'm not playing a big role in it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people can like that can have still pretty momental impacts on like he, he had a large impact on my own life. And so it was something that I sort of still wanted to get right. Mm-hmm. I think is what it was. I wanted to sort of be like, I needed this to get it right. I think that something that was really interesting about your process with this story, I guess, is that you mentioned that you brought an essay originally about it to LGP, gosh, a really long time ago. And, and in that version, it was really, it was very personal, of course, and it was an essay, of course. But one of the things that kind of happened is you had this refrain that was like you trying to just, I think, nail down a moment and, and like, I don't know, maybe make space or describe your feelings, but that version of the essay, we, ha- we weren't doing storytelling yet, so this is part of it, but in that version of the essay, there wasn't a linear arc, kind of. So in the story that everybody heard earlier, there's, there's two kind of arcs, right? Like there's the baseball game, and there's, there's you finding out to the funeral. So there are these two things happening, and I think it's really, it's really clear, and we get to live those along with you. But you started at this place where, like, it, it wasn't clear, and it was just, this isn't a criticism, this is just how it goes, but it was like, I just have a lot of feelings and I don't know my place in it. And I think the conversation that we had then, which has been reflected a little bit right now, was you you telling us about that, and we were talking about you know social media and grief and like all of this stuff about how do you even find your place in something like this to identify it, to get to a place where you can actually tell something that's kind of cohesive, uh, but that includes you. We sort of talk a lot about trying to find, finding the moment or the action of a story that sort of lets you encapsulate the feelings. Um, like, you know, and, and there's a, we have a bunch of different sort of, you know, archetypes of ways stories get told. Uh, and one way is, you know, you have this feeling, you have this thing you want to explore, and then you sort of find the moment to sort of help, to help walk people through it. 
Um, and I think that's that the, the baseball game was the way to was what sort of broke down the barriers that I was having and trying to find a way to, to tell a story uh, was like as soon as I had that sort of as the as a part of the narrative um, I was it, it did it served a couple purposes it let me fully explain sort of my sort of the background it, but at all the same time it also sort of gave me action to keep coming back to uh, which it was not in at all in the first essay the first essay was straight up an essay um, and and I think what allowed it to become a story was that sort of second that second part that I was able to sort of add yeah, add into it the whole idea of of stories we don't tell it's not to me it never really necessarily meant the secret stories that you don't tell anybody and you're revealing them in that way I think it it's to me it's more connected to like this story that you told um, that we just that we we just heard that you were working on it for over a period of time and it's just maybe it's not a story that you tell to somebody at a party or something like that obviously but it's it's one that you're trying to figure out like we've been talking about that you're it's the story you don't tell because you're trying to process it in some way and i agree storytelling helps for sure yeah and it's it's a story you know this particularly was a story i i never told Mm -hmm. because it never comes up Mm -hmm. you know it's not a how often are you sitting around a coffee shop being like hey you know those people we know who've now died? Let's have a conversation about them. And I think that's something that we see with that as well, is like because because you feel uncomfortable sharing, say, this story at a cocktail party, but any but any of the stories, like that's what kind of unifies them. The the other side of it, it's not just that you don't get to talk about it and maybe process it, it's that other people don't get to hear it. And so what what that means is that when you find yourself going through something like that, which is like something like grief at a young age or or anything, anything tough that people go through, because we all do, the, the impact of not talking about this kind of stuff is that you can end up feeling really alone. And so I think that it's not just how, what is the experience of creating the story to share with an audience? It's what is the experience of getting, getting the gift of hearing people talk about it? Because we all go through this kind of thing and, and it's always kind of a secret. I know you just said it's not about secrets, but it's not about secrets. It's about not creating them so that people actually have a way, so that people don't feel like this isn't their story, this isn't their grief. Like, you're allowed to have grief, even if you become peripheral to somebody. You're allowed to feel whatever you're feeling. And so I think that's one of the, the great things about doing this in a room. And we see it. We see it with the way that pe- the conversations that happen at the end of each event. I don't know how I could repay you for the colors and your you can find us online at thereapers.org because we're in the life collecting business. Today's episode of Stories We Don't Tell was brought to you by the official article of clothing of Paul Dor, Blazers. Thanks to Rihanna for our theme music. You can find out more about her in the show notes or at rihanna.ca. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Stories We Don't Tell podcast.